Hi, I'm Steve Duke, and this is the Two Roads Podcast. On this week's episode, we had a guy called Imran Mahmoud, who is one of the most impressive guys that, frankly, I know. Here's what his career to date has sounded like, and it, honestly, it's pretty intimidating. So he studied medicine at Oxford. Then he practiced as a physician for a few years, decided he then would go and get a master's in public health from nowhere else other than Harvard. After Harvard, joined McKinsey, worked as a management consultant for a few years, and then he left and started his own startup. So he started a health tech startup, ran that, grew it for four years before he partially exited it recently. So he's had this incredibly impressive career, and frankly, he was a bit intimidating. But when I talk to him, and as you'll hear on the podcast, he's a super approachable guy. I'm not going to call him normal because somebody who has this sort of career is not necessarily normal, but he's very humble and he is very thoughtful about how to think about career decisions. And he's at this really interesting point where he's going through this phase himself. So he's at this chapter where he's given himself a bit of time and a bit of space to think about what it is that he wants to do next. And we talk about that. Now, while he's taking that space, he's still doing some really interesting things. He's working as an advisor to lots of different companies. He is doing a lot of angel investing, and he also creates a lot of content. So he does so much. Um, so we talk about all of this. He is a father, and they've himself and his wife have made the decision to homeschool their kids. And we talk about why he's made that decision and um, some of the benefits of that so it's a very kind of holistic conversation around his life and he's very thoughtful introspective about um, the different decisions that he has made so it's definitely a good podcast if you are a medic so if you're working in medicine and you're considering potential other careers because he's been through that path and he's thought about it and he's written about it and made tons of content about it so Definitely something that you should listen to if you're a medic who's considering other options. But also, because, you know, Imran has this really wide breadth of experience across lots of different industries and types of jobs. And it's very thoughtful about these career decisions. So it pretty much is open for everybody. So that's this week's episode. Let's get into it. And I really hope you enjoy the show. Come on, Okay, so my first question for you, which is what I ask most guests when they come on, is when you were a kid, is there something that you wanted to be when you grew up? Still feel like a kid. I'm still asking myself that question. Um, so serious answers only. Um, it's very, It's very difficult to say, actually, because being a physician always appealed to me. And I think that's partly because of, um, as a, as an immigrant, as a child of immigrants, um, it's a bit of a stereotype that there are certain professions that are um, given more weight or credence in the household, right? And I think it's partly because, you know, when my parents emigrated as economic migrants to the UK, the reason they came was for financial stability, for opportunity for their kids, for a better life. And those professions, the traditional ones, like being a lawyer, being an engineer, being a doctor, they seem to carry a lot of um, weight in South Asian society. And I know for a fact that in our family, like it was no exception. My father, for example, was a chemical engineer. And that was his ticket out of like abject poverty in rural Pakistan. You know, so he was one of 13, 14 
children, um, the only one who got like higher degrees. And that's how he left the country from his rural village, came to the UK, did a PhD. And then uh, that is basically what kind of propelled him into a much better life situation and for his children. So that was the formula that worked. And I think that whilst it was never explicitly mentioned to me, I sort of inherited this system of beliefs that um, there are certain jobs that were, you know, worthy of the investment and the toil that my parents had, had put in to give me an opportunity to have a good education. It also happened that I actually really enjoyed science. I remember actually thinking that I had like an intellectual inheritance from my parents and chemistry was like core, core of that. And interestingly, in the UK, if you want to go to medical school, the one subject which is emphasized more than any other, it's not biology, it's actually chemistry. And I think it's to do with pharmacology or um, some aspects of like what you learn at medical school where people trip up if they haven't got a chemistry training. So I was really into chemistry and chemistry teed me up quite well to study medicine. I also have older siblings and two of them had been through medical school. So I think as the youngest of four children, I think like it's quite difficult to sort of have your own independent beliefs and ideas. Now, putting all of that aside for a second, one thing that I have always had, and I know this for sure, is that I've always been tremendously curious and I've had like a, a streak, which is somewhat at the intersection of rebellion and adventure. I've always wanted to do things differently. Maybe as the youngest of four children, I often think about this is that you need to do things differently because um, you're in the shadow of three older siblings. And especially if they're like <laughs> hardworking and they've kind of, you know, um, uh, they're doing their best to meet their parents' expectations as the children of immigrants to like get, you know, good degrees and good jobs. You kind of need to carve your own path. So um, I would say that there's that all of that like scientific orientation and the interest in medicine, but also this like strong streak of adventure and curiosity. So for example, when I was in, second, in secondary school in my penultimate or my final year of school, um, I remember like there was this competition that me and a few of my friends saw hosted by the British Council. And the prize was a two-week fully paid trip to South Korea to go to this like convention for high school students all across the world um, who had taken part in this competition. So I remember teaming up with some friends because I was like, oh, I really want to travel. Like I want to see these places. And you know, as an expat in the Middle East, we traveled a lot as, as a, you know, during my childhood. So I had the good fortune to do that. Um, but that trip, that journey was the first time I had done something really long distance, like without my parents and with other students. And then when I went to medical school for six years of medical school, every single year, virtually without any exception, in the summer holidays or in the Christmas holidays, I did a significant um like a degree related piece of travel or university related piece of travel on my own. So for example, in my first year, um, I did a six week teaching uh, gig in Hong Kong with a bunch of students. It was like a cultural exchange funded by um, the Chinese government, by the Hong Kong government at the time. In my second year, I did a bicycle tour across the Himalayas, across Nepal, across um, Tibet to Mount Everest base camp and so on. Uh, in my third year, like, you know, it goes, I went, I did like a medical rotation in Cairo Right. Uh, so I was doing these things every single year. In my fourth year, I did like a rotation in Cape Town in pediatrics. So I had this I had this like streak of like, how can I get out there and see the real world? And I had an increasing realization as time went on that actually medicine is a really good way to see the world. Turns out, actually, that's not really true when you graduate. I mean, medicine is like a universal passport, like to engage with people because disease, by and large, uh, physical disease is like consistent across the world and you can help people and 
you can, you know, you can communicate even in nonverbal language. Like you can read people's symptoms. Like you can sit on a train in some other part of the world and you can make a diagnosis and understand a lot about somebody's social and economic and physiological background just by looking at them. That's what you're trained to do. And so you learn a lot about people. Well, I can't help it now. And actually, as I was partly trained as an ophthalmologist, which is a profession, you know, it's like related to eye disorders and eyes are a window to the rest of your health. And you can sometimes pick up clues just by looking at someone's face, what type of chronic diseases they have about their, even what some of their blood panels would look like, like their lipid levels and so on. Um, And it's a spot diagnosis profession. So there are definitely things that you see and you're trained as a physician, especially in a place like Oxford, I was trained... um, very heavily in clinical skills. So we would walk into a patient's room and we'd stand at the door. There were literally like professors that would stand you at the door and say, talk me through what you can see. And you see a patient in the bed and you just have to pick up the clues, like what's on the bedside table? Can you smell anything? Sometimes can you hear anything? You could sometimes even hear a mechanical heart valve inside someone's chest. You could hear it if you're quiet enough. Um, You could see what's around the patient, what's plugged into them, et cetera. So you're always teasing apart these clues. So interestingly, medicine for me was like, simultaneously like a passport to see the world during that period of my career. But I also found when I started practicing that um, you actually had to be tremendously localized. You had to actually stay in one place. You had to train and specialize for a long period of time. And I think it was during that period that some of that impulse for like adventure and curiosity and travel um, cut across the grain of uh, what I was doing in my day job. And actually McKinsey was quite an interesting antidote to that because McKinsey promises you this immersive training and experience, which is like global in its remit and very much big picture and so on. So definitely haven't answered your question there, but. <laughs> well, you did. I mean, I asked you what you wanted to be when you were a kid and you, you told me you did actually want to be a physician. And and that is, of course, what you what you became. So, you, you know, you went to uni, you studied medicine and you had all these wonderful adventures, which sound incredible. Um, you became a doctor and then what's next? Because even since then you've done so much. So how do you summarize the path from, you know, graduating in medicine, starting to practice as a doctor um, to where you are now? Uh, Great question. So for me, I think the, um, I, I definitely enjoyed studying human health and disease and medicine. I really enjoyed that Uh, intellectually, um, from a social aspect, it's just a fascinating degree to study. And then you have these moments in your study where, which will really stay with you for the rest of your life. Like I remember the first time I saw a child being born. I remember going into a maximum security jail or my forensic psychiatry attachment. There's specific moments that punctuate my, my time there. And I really enjoyed my degree. I came to a realization during the course of medical school that technology uh, was beginning to shape the fabric of society in a way that was clearly accelerating. So I was in my first year at medical school when Facebook landed in the UK and you still needed a university email address. I was in my second or third year when the iPhone was released. And then you have this just tidal wave of like technological innovation. And then you start to have this um, rising tide of like student entrepreneurship, which is emerging on campus. So I sort of seeing all of this play out in front of me. And I had this instinct that, um, In terms of like, if you had to pick a lever to solve a problem in the very distant past, like the church or a religious construct would have been your lever. Like that was the, uh, that was the platform for like 
transnational like movements and uh you know um venturing and so on right and then there's like this period it may be in the more like much more recent past where like finance was where ambition how people are expressed their ambition they went into finance they moved markets they uh, uh moved capital they shaped industries and in more in the more recent past technology has increasingly become the lever through which people will like cr- create uh, track, have traction on a problem or create some kind of impact, create a movement, reach many people and so on. So as I became more aware of this, it stood in contrast to my own role as a physician. Of course, I use technology as prescribing medications, some of them very like uh, cutting edge biologic medications. Um, I was using instruments in my clinical practice as an ophthalmologist. But my use of those technologies was at the very end of a long process that would start somewhere maybe in an academic lab or in a corporation uh, as a kind of innovation. And it would go through this huge like life cycle of, of development. And at the very end, it would come into my hand as a physician to implement with a patient who's in front of me. My instinct was I wanted to go further upstream. I wanted to get closer to the heat of like where that was happening because I saw two things happen there. One was like the unique contribution that somebody is making. Invention and innovation are like unique contributions. As a physician, for most physicians, with all due respect, your contribution is is unique in that you do your practice in your way. But if you're not there on the day in front of the patient and there's another similarly trained and accredited physician, the whole system is actually designed not to create too much variation in practice. So somebody else would, would deliver the care in your absence. So I wanted to find like a friend of mine, actually, Ali, he, he talked about this concept of like a unique contribution. And that kind of stuck with me. So I wanted to get closer to where that was happening. And um, initially, I actually didn't know where to go. Because as a medic, like I was very much steeped in this like academic clinical tradition, which means that you do medical practice and then you do medical research and you do teaching. I had a faculty post at Oxford. I was working in the hospitals, et cetera. So I was like, that was my paradigm. And I didn't know what to do. And I was probably so institutionalized at the time that I thought, let me go back to university. So... I applied for a master's degree in um, the business of healthcare. I was awarded a Fulbright scholarship. I went to Harvard for a year, did this master's program with doctors from all around the world. Um, A big part of my training, of my degree, at least half was taught by either in Harvard Business School or by business school professors. And I then got exposed to this, like broadly, this world of business, right? Like the business of healthcare, the business of hospitals, health insurance, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, startups, venture capital, this whole ecosystem. I came back to the UK and then I was like, right, I need more of this. It was like a shot in the vein. I was like, I want to get more involved in this space. Um, I want to, uh, I want to understand how I can be an actor in this environment. McKinsey, I first encountered, I encountered in Oxford, but I didn't really know what it was about. And then when I went to Harvard, I became much more aware of what they were doing because some of my classmates went there. In fact, a very good friend of mine, Irish friend of mine called Ronan ended up at McKinsey. He was a cardiologist at the time. I was chatting to Ron and chatting to other friends. I was like, this is where I need to go. So I applied to McKinsey, got a job there. And then that's when I started working on healthcare strategy, life sciences strategy projects, working with pharma companies, medical technology companies. And some of that work was actually technology work. So we were building algorithms or apps for use by pharma companies to solve specific business problems. Let's say, for example, you're running a clinical trial. Um, when you're running clinical trials, the cost is so exorbitant that there's a real incentive um, to run the trial quicker, to speed up aspects of the trial. So we 
uh, built algorithms to help the pharmaceutical companies help to decide where they should recruit their patients from and how they should do that recruitment in order to do it quicker so that the trial could be executed faster. So I saw how the sausage was made. I went from being like a PowerPoint guy, an Excel guy, to sitting in a room that was running it with like an agile process with daily stand-ups, with designers, data scientists, engineers, and like some business people. And then we were building something altogether different, something tangible. We're building a product. Once I saw how the sausage was made, then I was like, this is really cool because you can build something and then it can have really scaled impact. Um, at McKinsey, of course, you're there at decision-making times. And so you can scale your impact in the sense that you can guide a client through a difficult patch and that will affect their trajectory. But you're not building something typically which is used like many, many times over on a daily basis, which is really what technology as a kind of, you know, um, part of the automation that's built into technology enables that to happen, right? Like through code and whatnot. So I wanted to do more of that. And I teamed up with an old friend and we basically applied our best uh, thinking on the healthcare systems problems and uh, what we could do with technology uh, to the primary care system in the UK, which is where my co-founder was working at the time. He's a GP and my wife is also a GP and I'm kind of close to that, that world. So for me, it was quite a natural transition then to starting a company in that space. The thing that was very unnatural and was in hindsight, like, you know, linked to this thread of rebellion or carving your own path, I would say in hindsight, is actually leaving McKinsey to start your own company. I say that now because looking back, when you leave a place like McKinsey or a, a great consulting firm or um, a financial services firm or what have you, there's this moment where you can trade your card for almost anything out there in the world. Like people would leave and they would go into PhD programs or MBA programs, or they would go and join like investment firms, or they would go and join like great corporates. But to start your own company is basically like throwing that card out the window and saying, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to go and do my own thing. And I'm going to just like forego this option, which is very, very strong. And I could, you know, would let me do many different things. And I'm going to actually cut my own path. So that was, you know, that was like, that was a tough, it, it wasn't a tough decision for me, like in terms of like passion and interest, but, you know, we just had my second child. And it was an important decision for us as a family um, because of the drop overnight collapse of my income. And truth be told, I didn't actually properly like pay myself a real pension or anything for those years that I was in the startup. And I just had all my eggs in one basket, which was my equity. Um, so then you have the startup journey. Um, we can say a little bit more about that. But essentially, over the next four years, we built and scaled a venture-backed digital health company, um, which has now continues to, to run over five years later, which is, which is um, you know, doing some really interesting work in the, in the space of clinical trials and technology for clinical trials and gathering data from um, medical record systems to answer really specific questions about how drugs and devices work in the real world. Um, so I'm still in touch with the company. I'm not actually operationally involved anymore uh, since the last year or so. And that's where this like current chapter of a mixture of solopreneurship and angel investing and uh, being, as my friend Musty calls me, a diligent, uh, sorry, a digital delinquent. Uh, that's when this uh, this chapter begins. But that that's a yeah my retrospective way of telling the story. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I I definitely want to dive into I I want to dive into this chapter in a bit more detail. Um, but before we do that, there's one thing that's cropping up for me, right? So if I listen to your story, 
it's you know oxford educated and then studying uh you know practicing as a physician and going to harvard and then mckinsey and, and then starting a startup i'm like this guy is some sort of superhuman right and i'm wondering what it is that makes you that way because it's clearly you're clearly very naturally intelligent but I'm interested, are there other things that you think are more on the nurture side of, you know, your personality or how you work or whatever else that other people can take up that allow you to do so much and achieve so much? Because I'm looking at this being like, this is, this is incredible. I would love to do so much, you know, like Imran has. Um, I may not be as smart as him, but maybe there's other things that I can steal from him that's going to help. <laughs> Uh, Steve, it's like it's very like kind and kind of embarrassing for you to say that, but um, I, I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't know. I don't think about my myself in those terms at all. Like honestly, um, I, I recognize. I recognize that um, that is kind of an unusual and interesting journey. I would say a lot of it is like a lot of it is just sort of believing you can do something. Um, so when I, I was very lucky, I went to a good secondary school. And I applied to the same Oxford college that my form tutor went to. So this is a lady who, a teacher who I used to spend like 15 minutes with every morning, like just before classes started. And she had the kind of pastoral relationship for me and a bunch of other students. So that can't be a coincidence. Like, you know, so there's obviously some rubbing off there of like, telling the story about what it's like at Oxford and why I should go to like this college and then making me believe that I can do that and just really relating to me in that way. It's a tremendous privilege. Like I can't um, discount that. Right. So that was a huge influence. And then the Harvard thing, my co-founder on a very similar scholarship went to Harvard for a year. And then one of the guys I lived with as a junior doctor before I applied, Adam, he also went to Harvard for a year on basically the same scholarship. So I'm, I was surrounded by people that had done this like unusual thing. So then that rubbed off on me. It sparked my intellectual curiosity. Again, that adventurous trait within me was like awakened. I thought, let's go for this. Um, the McKinsey thing, as I said, Ronan in my class, my, my good Irish friend um, applied, who was a physician. He was looking for something different, a bit like I was at the time. He ended up there, kept in touch with him. Uh, and then I was put in touch with another physician who was an Oxford graduate who had just started at McKinsey. So, you know, all of these things, this is why actually I think that... Um, this is why I think like representation and like role models and networks and access are so important. So I think if I deconstruct this journey into its like primitives and like what are the ingredients or things that could enable people to take those leaps uh, into a direction, into an opportunity that might otherwise feel out of reach, I would say this is just very speculative. But I would say the first thing is that... Um, like knowing people that have done it before is so important. Having people that look like you, that have names like yours, that you can see in those positions is so important. That's actually part of the reason I started, started creating content was that I wanted to be a source of information for a version of myself like 10, 15 years ago. Like what would I like to see? What would I want to know, et cetera. Um, so I think that those people, those friendships, the support that I got there was was tremendous. Um Beyond that, I was like lucky, I think, that I went to school, to university before like the social media and smartphone generation in the sense that the 
my level of distraction with those technologies was like relatively very, very low. Um, I did have a Facebook account. I never really had an Instagram account. I've never really used Instagram. I never really used Twitter. I did have a Facebook account. At some point I created a LinkedIn account, lol. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, maybe that's part of it. It's interesting. It's interesting how much of it, how much of it compounds, isn't it? Like, especially from a network perspective and like seeing those people because it's, you know, it's when you get into the university, that's where you meet the people who've, you know, got the jobs and the companies that you've wanted. And then it's when you're in the company that you meet the people who've gone on and started the businesses that you maybe wanted to start. And really just, it just seems like it compounds. And I completely agree with you around the importance of, you know, having role models where, you know, making sure that there's representation in those different organizations, because it feels like if you get on the path, you know, you just need to, as long as you're, you work hard and you take the opportunities when they come, you can, you know, you can follow the path, but if you're not on the path, like it's tricky to kind of jump up onto the, the other one and meet all the folks who are doing the things that you want to do. But I'm interested to learn a bit more about this chapter, as you're saying. So this kind of period of um, you know, being a, a digital delinquent, as you say. So, um, because I'm going through this, you know, I've kind of left my startup job a few months ago. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out now what, what the next chapter looks like for me. So, how do you describe what you do now? And specifically, I want to know what does an actual day look like? Because I think that's usually when you get to understanding what somebody's really doing. Yeah. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Okay. So let me let me let me um let me give you one caveat um, before I answer the question, which is that I'm in a transitionary period. So this specific period of time is like dedicated to creating space and headspace and opportunity to discover what's next, right? So I don't think I'll be in this for a very like indefinite. At the moment, um, the way that I have basically paid the bills, if I can put it that way, since leaving um, my startup and not being a full-time employee is that I have been doing advisory and consulting work for other companies. Um, now, by number, uh, three quarters of them are publicly traded pharmaceutical and medical technology companies. Uh, one quarter of startups, but by value, uh, it's like the startup number goes a lot lower and it's much more skewed towards um, the kind of public companies, you know, the large companies that I consult with. I do that through my own company. So I've set up my own business and uh, I consult through that uh, vehicle. Um, on the side, I have two principal hobbies. The first hobby has been angel investing. and I did get some proceeds from my um, partial exit from my startup and uh, from other, you know, other like sources as well, including some of the money that I've been, been earning. And I've been reinvesting a lot of that into startups. On the other hand, uh, the other side hobby or uh, gig is content creation. So <laughs> um, I started, initially I started writing and blogging, which I actually did enjoy. And I think um, I would like to continue doing in some capacity. But I started creating video mainly because um, I am someone who really likes products and the craft of pulling something together and creating a video. Each time I create a video, it's like creating a product. So you're conceiving of a customer need, a user need. You're like fleshing out, you know, how to address that need through your product, which is a video. You're creating the product, which the video, which has like creative elements, and then you're kind of shipping it into the wild. So I started a YouTube channel. And that YouTube channel um, 
I slowed down a little bit because uh, we actually had a baby uh, over the Christmas holidays. Um, so I've been really hands-on at home and I've just basically slowed down some of my content creation as a result. Um, but I've been doing a lot more stuff like this because it's, thank you very much. We've been doing a lot more stuff like this because it's um, easier for me to do because I just have to turn up. Um, and that has been a lot of fun. It's also taught me a lot about digital marketing. Working YouTube and content is like a classic case study in like how to create and optimize a marketing funnel from um, titles and thumbnails and click-through rates to retention. If you're trying to sell something, which I'm not at all, conversion and so on. So it's like a really good immersion in marketing. So I've been just basically going really deep on this for the last 18 months. I also have this hypothesis that like the way that work is going content creation will increasingly be, well, the skills involved in content creation will increasingly be, increasingly be important in mainstream work in the future. Presenting on camera, um, speaking, writing, creating artifacts that, um, creating artifacts that, um, you know, uh, power and enable people to work in different time zones asynchronously. So, that those have been the two kind of side hobbies. They have cost me a lot of money uh, because on the angel investing side, it's it's obvious why. But on the content creation side, I did hire an editor, and um, who edits a lot of my my content. But um, that's basically how we balance the books at home. I think that I think that's important because I was looking at your content that you've created, and it's um, you created a decent amount. I have to say, and I was like, um, if you didn't have an editor, I think you'd probably be going crazy by now. So <laughs> I think that's probably needed. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. So I was doing, I was doing one to two videos a week for quite some time, actually. So it was pretty, pretty full on. Okay. So that's really interesting. You're doing, um, you know, the advisory work, the angel investing, and then the content creation, which is quite a bit um, as well. So I'm interested on the angel investing side, right? Because, you know, I was saying this to you before, this seems like the sexy thing to do these days. Um, and it, it just sounds like so much fun, right? And it's something that I've considered and have actually consciously told myself not to do because it feels like too much enjoyment um, that it's probably not a good thing for me to do because something that's that much fun is probably not a good financial decision. And it's easy. And it feels for me, it feels easy to give away money, right? It's easy to write a check. It's hard to actually get that money back. So it'd be a long time before you actually know whether you're any good at it or not. So, um, why, what's the case for me being wrong? I think, um, if you look at the, benefits of angel investing what i have found is that um in if i just think inwardly for a second there's some part of me that feels uh one of the best ways to apply the proceeds of my own entrepreneurial endeavors is to reinvest them so i'm a gardener <laughs> i have um an allotment and when i get seeds from the crops that I produce, sometimes I keep those seeds and I plant them in the ground again. So for me, angel investing is like that, right? So uh, it's reseeding companies with resource and support based on the proceeds of my prior entrepreneurial activities. If I get like 
medium scale exits from my angel investing that are not life changing, but are like nice to have, I'll probably just put them back in the kitty to reinvest most of those back into angel investments. Um, just because it feels like, um, spiritually is like a strange word to use here, but it feels like spiritually that's like a good thing to do with that is like to propel that force in the universe of like company creation, job creation, innovation, adventure, uh, you know, um, David against Goliath, etc. That's like an exciting thing to do. The second main reason, which is more out. Yeah. So it's not like a, it's, it's not a primarily financially motivated decision. No, not at all. Not at all. I basically assume that I'm not going to get any of that money back. Genuinely. I mean, that sounds like, and a lot of people say that, but I genuinely assume I'm not going to get that money back. Um, and the second, the second, um, reason is more like not just about my inner peace and like enjoyment, but it's more outward and it's about building a network and backing people that like I believe in, or I want to form long-term relationships with. So when you co-invest with someone, let's say there are two angels that co that collaborate on a deal and co-invest that actually is like, you know, if you think about the people in the past, you've done business with everybody who I've co-invested with on a deal in some way I've done business with. So that in itself forms a kind of loose bond. And then the company that you invest in, the people there, when you back them again, it forms, it's like, um, if you think about anyone who's ever like supported you financially to make something possible, maybe to help you at university, to help you at school with some of your travels, if you've had the luxury of that, somebody who's investing in you in this moment of, um, you know, like where you really need like people to believe in you and to support you to kind of take on this huge challenge that creates a bond. It creates a connection. It creates a friendship. And it's not about like power dynamics or anything like I'm your benefactor and like I expect something in return. It's nothing like that at all. It's much more um, infinite sum than that, which is just doing something to help people that you believe in or to like further something that you care about. And it does form a bond. So I would say a significant proportion of my connections now that are like a big part of my life and my work have emerged through this entrepreneurial ecosystem or have emerged through angel investing or have emerged through like relationships with other investors that are further along company investment journey that I might share deals with or founders, even in case I haven't invested in, but I'm helping them to find other investors who are a good fit. So it's a way, it's a way of being helpful. It's a way of like building friendships, building connections and creating a kind of professional family for yourself. Mm, It's very, it's very, interesting perspective to have on it and not one that I probably thought about before. So uh, I really like that in terms of then, you, you know, before, so you're, you're kind of in this chapter now, right? When you're saying this is um, you're doing these things and you enjoy them and you do them for a reason, but it's also a time to get some space to figure out what it is that you want to do next. So how do you, how do you think about figuring out what that, the thing is do you have like a structure or a life philosophy where you're trying to find a a job or something to do or a business to start that fits into that and that brings you you know happiness or contentment how do you think about figuring that out and making that decision good question um because this is this is very timely and like it feels very uh, feels very real for me at the moment my the the answer is it's quite loose loosely structured way of like solving this um i i have done a formal exercise where i've like picked the five things that i value most in life and 
at this moment, sorry, it doesn't have to be forever because I think your needs change. If I think about my needs at 25 and then now about a decade later, and then what they'll be in 10, 15 years, they're different. So I've gone through that list just now. And the kinds of things that have come out of it are like um, sense of mission and purpose, doing something that feels like it's really good and worthwhile. Number two is uh, autonomy. feels quite important for me to have some autonomy. Uh, number three will be um, working with other people, being social, being surrounded by other people at this moment feels like important to me. So you can do some exercise like that. And then you can basically cross-reference those values against the opportunities that you see in front of you. It might be going to work for a company. It might be starting your own company. It might be going to work in professional services. It might be um, becoming a freelancer, whatever it may be. So I have done that sort of exercise and I've come out of that with um, like two to three things that I would consider doing and I would be very excited to do. The current climate is obviously a bit weird because there have been cuts across industry um, in technology, even in professional services. And I think it's just a chilly time out there in Europe, at least um, for job seekers. But I have been through an exercise of that nature. And that sort of somehow like meets a, a different complementary framework, which is just like learning to trust my gut um, and learning to, you know, listen to like the signals from my body and in my inner inner dialogue about like what I'm enjoying, where I feel energized, what I'm excited to work on, who I really want to work with. Um, so for me, it's it's not some like very structured grand master plan. You know, like some people maybe have a problem that they want to dedicate themselves to for like decades, like maternal mortality, or they might have um, a position they want to get to in their mind, which is crystal clear. Like I want to be a CEO of a publicly traded company, or I want to be a, you know, X, Y, or Z professional footballer or whatever it is. Um, for me, it's like, it's a bit more emergent. And um, there are these like tools that I will use on the way to like make sense of things. And I also just trust my wife a lot. I talk to her, uh, in periods of transition, I'll talk to her anywhere between like 15 minutes to one or two hours a day um, and just chatting through things. Or we're, we're like, if we're walking or if we're driving, I'll talk through things. I'll get her feedback um, because she's she thinks about things very differently to me. And I've realized that um, at this stage in life, like decisions are like effectively affecting the whole family. Um, so that's been a big part of it as well. Yeah, I think in... McKinsey gave me so many gifts and allowed me to develop so many skills, but it left me with one curse, which is thinking that everything needed to be solved through analytical structures. And there's some things in life that they can help with, but they're not the only tool that you should be using. And that idea of being able to trust your gut and listen to yourself and listen to your body and like, well, does this feel good? You know, and I remember the, the, the moment for me was, it was a random one. I was watching uh, The Defiant Ones, that Netflix documentary about uh, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. And Dr. Dre said one thing, he was like, this was years ago. And he was just like, I only ever do business with somebody that, that it feels good. And I was like, that is a thought that never would have crossed my mind to like trust your emotions, you know, that strongly. But of course, it makes so much sense. So that's something that I've been trying to actually practice and listen to more is like well no just just feel good don't worry about it you know is it analytically in your excel the right decision does it feel good for you yeah i mean these instincts have also developed over millennia um you know like intuitions and whatnot so i think that there's something there that we should listen to um 
And actually, there's there's even research in the in the in the medical space about physicians trusting their gut instincts on patients, and that there's evidence to show that actually that's something that physicians should do. They should learn to do that. Um, you know, where they have a patient that doesn't quite fit the mold or what have you. Um, so yeah, I think that that's that's like um, I get a lot of support from my from my wife on these things. I think. Uh, and I have a few friends who have similar journeys where they've uh, left a vocation like medicine and they're like trying to find their way in the world. And, you know, we all talk to each other about, you know, like in an analogy, if you're walking on a, on a path through a forest and then you just turn off the path, you're going to need to have to cut your way through the thicket, through the bush. Right. And that's going to be tiring. It's going to be painful. And you're not going to know for a long time if you're cutting your way in the right direction or if you've like taken, taken a wrong turn and you need to turn around and go back. So I think that's one thing. The other thing I think that McKinsey can sometimes train you to do, which is not, which is important to be mindful of and to somehow learn to unravel when the time is right and sort of wind it back, is this like question of metabolic rate, you know, like your cadence, like how fast you need to move. Um, because, um, you know, in the, in the world of like high finance and const- strategy consulting and, and whatnot, like things move at lightning pace. I remember like if I asked a colleague in the research department at McKinsey for like some insights on a question and if they came back to me and said I can get it to you in like three days time I knew that that would be too late because three days in a McKinsey week like the project has moved you know from not to A to B it's gone from like A to F or something um, in the course of three days so you're just used to moving at this like insane pace you can conceive of a survey in the morning you can draft it in the afternoon and you can ship it overnight and have a hundred thousand respondents by the next morning. Um, that's the kind of world that you're in. And when in the real world, I think if you think about the distinction between efficiency and effectiveness, your speed of movement is not actually what matters. I think it's like moving in the right direction and getting closer to your destination, which is much more about being effective at getting to where you need to go, not just being efficient and spinning your wheels really, really fast because you could be going in all sorts of different directions. So that's one thing I've learned need, needed to learn to do is like understand that really there is no rush. Um, there are things happening in my life at the moment that will not, I will not be able to enjoy in 10 or 15 years time, but I can uniquely immerse myself in today and derive tremendous happiness and satisfaction, whether it's, aspects of parenting um or spending time with my own parents and and things like that so um you know so like i think it's important just to be mindful of that um it's not yeah it's not about like reducing your ambition it's more about like understanding um where your ambition should be guiding you and not feeling anxious in dealing with that ambition and just yeah getting more comfortable to sort of take your time yeah, I I can very much resonate with that because my own experience has been, you know, since having some time off and some space, it's a little bit uncomfortable and you naturally want to jump back into something, right? Because it's you get used to moving fast, whether it's at McKinsey or startups, and it's it's not normal to sit still. Um, but I've kind of forced myself to because I'm like, no, no, you have to sit still. You can't just jump on something because, like, you want to feel active Um and I think that's allowed me to be more effective, as you say, and like get to better thoughts and considerations about what it is that I want to do next. And I want to talk a bit about um, what you mentioned there about your family, because, you know, you seem like you've got a lot going on. You've had a lot going on for quite some time and um, you have a family now. 
And I also read that you homeschool, you micro school um, your kids as well. So talk to me a bit about how you manage, you know, your, how, how you think about balancing family and everything is else that it is that you do. Um, great question. So this is, again, it's an emergent uh, approach. It's not like a grand master plan. Um, and again, again, I would say like this thinking about this theme of like re- um, adventure or rebellion or however you want to, whatever the intersection of those two ideas is. I think part of it is also related to that in the sense that it's still countercultural to set, to not send your kids to school. Um, is cutting across against the grain of like societal expectations. We actually live with my wife's parents who are both career teachers now retired. So we get a lot of, you know, get interrogated about it on a regular basis about why we're doing this. Um, I think COVID was a catalyst. So my, my, um, when COVID struck, my eldest was four. So he was in preschool. So his preschool was disrupted a bit anyway because of COVID. And then his transition into year one, reception and then year one, was like not such an obvious choice as it would have been in pre-COVID times because homeschooling was more of a thing during COVID. A lot of parents were figuring out like how to keep kids busy at home, like spending more time in the outdoors with their kids, just doing things to kind of keep them engaged. Um, So that was probably the catalyst. And then there are a few... um, there are a few specific reasons which are more like conscious. So the first is that my wife and I have decided and agreed that we want to spend as much time with our children as possible. Now, if you think I saw this like really stunning graph that explained um, who you spend your time with during the course of your life from zero to death at like 85 or whatever, as a newborn, it's like the line for your time with your parents is like a hundred percent. And then when you hit 12 or 13, it starts, well, like school age, it starts to go down a bit. Then it gradually tails off. And then when people hit 18, it goes down to like 2%, right? Um, because you're not spending any time with your, your parents. You've like left home, you've gone to university, you've gone to the world of work, etc. And then in your like mid 40s, it goes up maybe a little bit more because you might be seeing your parents and caring for them. And then it goes to zero at some point in adulthood. The line for your children, it goes like to... 100% when they're born, at some point typically in the 20s or 30s. And then it kind of tails off such that um, a bit like the other line with your own parents, it's like, you know, when your children get to the age of like 12, you've spent more than half of your like area under the curve that you'll ever have with them, right? So when I saw that statistic, I was like, okay, so when my kids get to the age of 12, I'm like well over the hill. I may be like three quarters through the time I'll ever spend with them in my entire life. So we wanted to just maximize that period of their lives. We wanted to have as much as possible of that. Um, and we're in the privileged position where um, my wife's work is quite flexible and um, our financial needs and requirements can be, can be met uh, through mostly through my work. So she's like basically quarterbacking the homeschooling. Um, We don't do a lot of the teaching ourselves. Uh, A lot of it's done in small groups with other kids in the community, in our village, uh, in other cities nearby where they go and do activities or they have like teaching sessions outside school. And then they just have a lot of free time. And there are specific things that we do to like supplement their education, which is more like conscious, you know, what do I believe are important, useful 
um, skills to learn in the 21st century. For example, our children are learning Mandarin. Um, as they get older, we want to give them like more exposure to certain technical topics, maybe give them like more hands-on um, vocational type training to accompany their academic training. They spend a lot of time in the outdoors. Um, they have like one day a week where they spend the whole day from morning till end of the day, basically outdoors um, every week. So, you know, those are things that just feel intuitively like we want them to be comfortable in their skin. I want them to be comfortable in their bodies. I want them to be physically active and strong. I want them to be able to make stuff with their hands. We want them to learn certain languages. We've traveled with them. We spent a lot of last year traveling probably about seven or eight months because we wanted to expose them to different cultures and give them that type of immersion and appreciation for their inheritance. When I say inheritance, inheritance, I mean, like if you take faith as an example, so as, as Muslim, um, spending two, three months in Cape Town or in Malaysia or in different parts of the world, for them, it's like connecting them to part of their genealogy of their faith and experiencing how that is manifest through the lens of a different culture in Asia or in Southern Africa. And just connecting with like aspects of that, whether it's the, the, the musical tradition, whether it's like other aspects of the culture, the faith itself, um, it's just it's just like I want them to have that the that richness of like experience in their in their young age, so that they they feel grounded in like who they are. They know like where they come from. They know what their cultural and spiritual and intellectual inheritance is like, where that comes from. Mm. Mm. I mean, I I I don't have kids, and so I'm I'm nowhere near the point of you know making this decision so i've not really thought about it but you make a pretty compelling argument for it i think especially the one about being able to just spend a lot of time with them um, and that graph is terrifying for me for for so many reasons but um <laughs> i guess if you're able to take action on it then it can be quite helpful but then also that ability to kind of build other skills and to um you know for kids to be outside that just feels so important to me and it feels like i got to spend a lot of time outside when i was a kid and um, thankfully, and I just, it just feels so important. Like I just feel like kids should be outside and doing physical things. Um, it just feels like really important to me. Just using their bodies, using their bodies. And like, yeah, even like as an ophthalmologist, you know, like I think my understanding is like that there's like a certain, um, pan, like, and you know, pandemic of like myopia in um, children in certain parts of the world where they're exposed a lot to, reading and screens from a very young age without the uh, accommodation and adjustment of like looking into the horizon, right? Because they just live in these worlds that are relatively boxed in with these devices, you know, and a lot of that is also tied to like economic development and poverty and so on. And that that's like the way that people get their education and so on. So I'm not, I'm not casting a kind of value-based judgment on that, but I think if we have the opportunity to give them that, um, then we, yeah, we do try to, my wife is Scottish as well. She grew up like basically one foot in the outdoors, um, thinking that, you know, skin is waterproof. There's no such thing as bad weather, just bad preparation. Um, so that's rubbed off as well a lot on, on their upbringing. Yeah, that's fantastic. I've got, um, I probably got two or three more questions that I'd love to run through with you. Um, the first is, you know, specifically related to your decision to, to kind of move away from uh, being a practicing physician, because I know lots of doctors, right? I, it feels like in my year um, in school, everyone decided that they wanted to be a doctor. 
and some of them love it, but some of them have definitely considered moving out of medicine and thinking about what other options are out there. And I think sometimes they're so busy that they don't even get like the headspace or the chance to consider those. So if somebody's in that position, say they're a junior doctor, how can they think about that decision? Or is there anything that they can do to try and think through and make that decision around, hey, should I stay here? Is this something for me? Or, you know, what other options are out there? And should I maybe consider them? I agree with you on that observation about um, people looking around, looking elsewhere. And I think the way that I would counsel somebody in that situation is you can like intellectualize this thing a lot and you can create frameworks and uh, scenarios and hypotheticals, but really the, probably the best thing to do is just like to try something and to see how you feel about it. So when I left medicine to go to McKinsey, I knew that with about two or three months notice, I could go back and locum as a doctor. So I could do like shift-based work. And then with like nine to 18 months, I could get back into a specialty training program and become a fully qualified specialist in something, uh, you know, I could get into the program in nine to 18 months. So I knew that I had, uh, it's like a, it's like a two way door. It's a revolving door. I wasn't going, I wasn't stepping off the edge of a cliff and there would be no way back. And so that really de-risked the whole decision. Obviously McKinsey as well as an established company. And there's like many precedents of doctors who've gone there and gone on to have stable, happy, fulfilled careers. I, I assume at least they seem to be able to pay their way through life. Um, so that made it a lot easier just thinking about it in, in less absolute terms. And I think medicine and many vocations are inherently quite risk averse in academias like that. People don't like career breaks. They don't like gaps on a CV. Um, and, you know, doing anything that feels out of the ordinary is like very scary. I would just say like, don't worry about it. <laughs> just try those things. Speaking to people is a great way to understand what your op op options are rather than just doing like internet research, like just get on the phone with people, ask them, ask them the uncomfortable questions, ask them like what they hate about their jobs, ask them how much money they make, um, ask them what their prospects are. There's one specific thing I would say about medicine, which is that a lot of people like actually quite like the craft of medicine, but they don't like the conditions that they have to work in. We're seeing this in the UK with the junior doctor strike. A lot of dedicated doctors there who have like been tipped over the edge. And in those cases, I would say there are ways to practice medicine in systems, in countries, in environments that will help you to feel more in control of your destiny, less burnout, less frustration. Um, one very good example is the United States, where uh, clinical specialization can be done in three years. The, just to put that in contrast, in the UK, the same equivalent thing would be like anywhere between five and 10 years. So if you can get that done in three years and then have, um, I'm not like advocating everyone go to the States, but just to make the point, you spend less time in training. They're paid more well, which for many doctors is important given what's happened to our generation with home ownership and so on. And then you have like, you know, myriad potential employers domestically and abroad. In the UK, um, relative to training, responsibility, and stress, physicians, many would feel that they're underpaid. And um, many of them don't have many employment options because predominantly they have to work in the NHS on a standardized contract. They might have private options, but then that's like having a job on top of your job. So I would say like, you know, try and 
try and explore like, is it medicine that I don't like or is it just medicine in these circumstances that I don't like? And then once you're getting clear on that, you know, can I like, who can I speak to to understand what my options are? Um, what else I could be doing? And then what can I do just to try it? Like just, you know, just go and dabble. Okay, so my, my last question, which might be a bit of a meaty one, but I'm really interested to hear your perspective on it, is that you've got this YouTube video about getting trapped in a career, um, which I found really interesting, and I'd recommend people for people to watch it. Um, and there's all these reasons why people get trapped. And now I'm interested in your thoughts on two things. One is for an individual who is, say, coming out of university or early on, in their career, maybe in their first job, what can they do to avoid getting trapped in a position where they feel like, you know, they can't leave or they can't pursue it? And then the second question is a bit harder and bigger, but from a societal perspective, what can we do to avoid this happening for everybody? Because it feels like a lot of people get trapped in careers and don't end up picking the career that brings them the most satisfaction or contentment from their lives. So they're two related but different questions, and I'd love to get your thoughts on both of them. You can either make better decisions first time round, or you can be better equipped to leave second time round. So when it comes to like the decision making in the first instance, I would say um, many people who go into vocational degrees and careers, they have this like, thing that they articulate as passion for that life. So I had I went into my Oxford Medical School interview and I said, I am passionate about being a doctor. Actually, I didn't really know that I was passionate about being a doctor. I was interested in, in medicine. I was curious about the human application of science, um, but I didn't really know what it's like to be a doctor in all truth. So I couldn't sincerely say I'm passionate about doing that job. And then again, if I were more informed and in some ways less romantic about being a doctor, I may not have done medical school and then I may not have been in a position now to apply my medical training in different, different contexts in, a, in an interesting way. So I don't know, like, you know, it's difficult to, it's difficult to, it's difficult to say exactly what the implication is here, but I think it's partly just really understanding what life for people in that field is like and having those awkward and uncomfortable conversations with people about like the worst parts of their job I think that's why medical schools emphasize things like work experience, but it's kind of become a performative thing now where people are box ticking in order to get into medical school, not doing work experience to really sincerely understand if they like medicine or not. That's my observation. So I think it's just, I would say anyone who's sort of committing to something, whatever you can do to sort of like immerse yourself to some extent in that thing before you get started so that you're making a more well-informed decision. I also think in the last 15 to 20 years, the economic situation in many countries has changed. When I started in medical school, the cost of living crisis and home ownership crisis was nowhere near what it is now in the southeast of the UK. And for many doctors, it has sort of unraveled in front of them um, and left them in a position of that they were not expecting to be in when they graduated and as they're working. Um, the second thing I think, which is probably more relevant to people who are listening, which is like, what do you do if you find out you're in a job where like, you just don't see a happy, fulfilled future for yourself? Um, this is a difficult one, but because people's circumstances and their resources to like do something about this are really, um, really um, variable. But I would say like you, 
there are some general skills that you need in life, which will, which anyone can start building, which will help you to make these types of transitions. One is like networking, right? So how do you actually build your network? So for you, Steve, Steve, like if I say you're great at networking because you're not afraid to send a cold email, like you did in the case with me, you create content, which is a magnet for relationships and opportunity and interest. It gives you a platform to have conversations like this to develop your own understanding. There might be a follow-up. Let's say that you were a medic and you wanted to like move out of medicine. You might follow up after this conversation and say, hey, Imran, like I really enjoyed what you said there. Like, Can you introduce me to somebody at McKinsey who I can talk to or whatever? You see what I mean? So there's something that you're doing. There's a muscle that you're building, which is a universally applicable trait or strength or characteristic that can help you navigate the professional world. Um, an alternative might be like to develop a specific set of skills. So I do think actually the large language models are really changing the market value of technical skills because I think a lot of programming is, is now um, like augmentable by technology. But I used to really strongly believe, and I'm still trying to understand what this is, that if you have technical skills or you have skills in a regulated area, um, then that can facilitate movement into jobs in other industries. So let's say you're a developer, you're a designer, you're an engineer, and you're like in academia and you want to go work in industry, then those technical skills are the thing that are going to bridge your way into industry. Let's say that you, you're in a heavy industry or you're in construction or extractive industries and you want to work in consumer tech, then again, having like real skills, tangible skills that are needed in those industries and across this like industry as a whole, like technical skills, will facilitate your transition. If you don't have transferable hard skills, it's much more difficult to make a case to move um, and also to move into a good job and not to feel like you're taking, you know, going back to zero. So skills, networking, um, I do believe content creation um, is a skill in itself, but also will create opportunity. I think one thing that you have to be mindful of is that some people will make career changes to create optionality, but I think at some point you do have to commit to something and you have to get good at something. You have to be known for something. You have to do the hard work and close doors because you can move a lot faster in life if you close doors. If you keep all the doors open, it will slow you down. Not that speed is like the thing you should be solving for it, but. It's a really, really good point because, it, and that balance is something that I toy with. And I think right now, I'm happy enough being on the optionality and opening doors side of things. But I realize that if I want to do great work in my career, I need to spend a long time at it and get really, really good and deep into it. And so at some point, I'm going to have to start closing doors if I want to do that, right? You can't, oh, you can jump around forever. Sure, you might have a lot of fun. But if actually doing some really meaningful, impactful work is something that's important for you, you're right. I, I think you do need to close close doors at some point. Imran, thank you, thank you so much for for all of this and um, for for this conversation, for taking the time, for all of your thoughts and advice. I know that you think about these things a lot. I watched a ton of your content over the past over the past few years, but especially over the last week. And there's some really, really well structured and well thought through um pieces of content there for people who are thinking about their career whether they're you know medics or other otherwise so i definitely recommend people to go and check out your youtube channel that's probably the best place to send people is it yeah more or less yeah 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 awesome well, listen thank you so much i really appreciate it and uh, i hope you have a great rest of your day
Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Enjoy Australia. I'll be I'll be feeling very envious of you because it's raining and cold here, but um, it's been really good to connect. Keep in touch. Hope you enjoyed that conversation that I just had with Imran. I got a lot out of this personally, and I actually still have so many questions that I want to follow up with him afterwards. But there was four specific things that I took away as really helpful. The first one was about the importance to listen to your gut. And Imran was talking about this in the context of making decisions about what he wants to do next in life. And for a guy who's, you know, trained as a medic and has gone to McKinsey, you expect him to be super analytical and structured. And he is all of those things. But he also said, hey, sometimes you just need to listen to your body, listen to your gut. How does something feel? How does an idea feel or a specific decision feel? And this is so important and something that I've had to learn the hard way is the importance to listen to your emotions when it comes to making decisions. And so you want to listen to both. You want to be able to listen to your emotions and see what they're telling you, but also listen to the rational side. And you want to have balance. If you've got too much of either one, it's really difficult to make a good choice. I know I was certainly used to be on this side of only listening to all of the rational reasons. Basically, you make decisions by Excel model, which is fine for financial decisions, probably not that good for life decisions. All the engineers or, you know, management consultants out there, um, you may be more in this bucket. The second thing that he brought up was when I was asking him about, you know, why he decided to homeschool his children, he referenced this graph about who it is that you spend your time with across the course of your life. And if you haven't seen that graph, I'm, I'll chuck it up in the show notes. It's very interesting. But um, it's also a bit scary because it shows you at how much time you're going to spend with each of the most important people in your life across the course of your lifehood. And what he said was, by the time your kid is 12, if you have a kid, you've already spent more than half of your the time that you will spend with that person already. And that's kind of scary, right? And so he, the, what he used that information to do was to say, hey, well, when my kids are young, I really want to spend as much time as possible with them. And I think you can extrapolate that onwards, right? Because whether that's your kids or whether it's your parents or whether it's your partner or your friends, look at when you're going to be able to spend time with them. And if they're important to you, like maximize that. And it's a good framework to think about different decisions, to overlay that on top of other things. Um, because, you know, time with these people is one thing that we can't change. We can't get back once it's gone. Unfortunately, it's a bit sad, but it is gone. The third thing was when I asked him about, you know, changing jobs, right? If somebody's trapped, how do they change jobs? He said, really important thing is to build skills. And it's, it's, it, it seems a bit obvious, but I think it's super, super important. I think about it as how are you building your balance sheet, right? Building your assets so that you can translate those into a new job at some point in the future. So there's obviously hard skills that you can go and learn. If you want to move into a specific industry, you need to find out what it is that you need to be able to do to get an entry level or some sort of job in that industry and then go and learn those skills, right? The second thing was about networking. And he has some really good tips that I won't rehash, but in terms of how to network and the importance of that. And so I just think that general idea of, hey, okay, you do want, now you are at the point where you want to move job. That's fantastic. Unfortunately, um, it doesn't just happen now. You got to go and make it happen. And building those skills is the way to do it. And then the last one is this super simple topic. When you're talking about 
how medics can think about whether or not they should leave their profession or leave, you know, being a medic. He's talking about, well, is a decision a two-way door or a one-way door? You know, the two-way door is one to say, okay, you can make the decision, but you know what? It's reversible. You can always come back. And you're saying, if you're a doctor, you can go and do something else, but you can come back to being a doctor actually pretty easily, right? But one-way doors are irreversible decisions. And so when you're thinking about any sort of decision to think, is it a one-way door? Is it a two-way door? If it's a two-way door, it basically means that you don't need to think about it as much as if it was a one-way door because you can always come back through it. You can go back to where you started. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I'd be really interested to hear what you found most insightful or helpful about it. So do just send me a DM on LinkedIn or on Instagram. I genuinely want to hear when people send me these messages and say, hey, I listened to this episode and I love that part about this. Like, it makes it very worthwhile for me, but also it's great feedback from it because I can then go and make sure that we get more of that type of content in the future. Also, final reminder, if you want to be part of one of the life design groups that I'm putting together, do send me a message on LinkedIn or on Instagram. Basically what these groups are is for people who are thinking about maybe making a change in their life from a career perspective or anything else. And they're want to go through the process that I describe in episode eight of actually designing your life and being conscious about it. So it's just much easier and nicer to be able to go through it with a bunch of people and to riff off them and get them to ask you questions and you can ask them questions as well. So if you want to do that, shoot me a DM. Apart from that, I really hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next week.